electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort. Deirdre Bose is off today. Cloud Week continues on Tech Check. A big lineup this morning. ServiceNow's Bill McDermott with us, plus the chief executives of HPE and Intuit on the heels of their results. Those are not the only movers, though. We'll also get to the big swings in names like CrowdStrike, Workday, and NetApp as we await Powell this afternoon, John. Yeah, Carl, uh, we got to start with the move we're seeing in CrowdStrike, though, and the ripple effects in the cybersecurity sector. I mean, take a look at uh, CrowdStrike stock. It was down almost 20% earlier. We'll take a check on it in just a moment. Question is, are these results signaling enterprise software is more vulnerable than many previously thought? CrowdStrike posted Q3 results, beating estimates, but weaker than expected revenue growth has the stock down, yeah, 19% at the moment. And those results also striking others in the cyber crowd. Sentinel One and Zscaler down big. You can see them there. Zscaler down more than 6%. Sentinel One down 12 plus. Palo Alto Networks down just a couple percent. Cloudflare actually up. ETFs tracking the cyber names like Bug, uh, CIBR, iHack also lower. Uh, CEO George Kurtz. CEO of CrowdStrike blaming the results on increased macroeconomic headwinds, Carl. I can't help but note that the larger customers of CrowdStrike actually seem to be doing better. Those deals still happening. But there's this trend that I'm, I'm hearing in different ways throughout enterprise software. Uh, customers trying to kind of piece out the deals differently, uh, pay for it in stages, not take that bite all at once, even if they know it's something that they're going to need something like cybersecurity. Yeah, interesting setup here today, John, because CrowdStrike did beat on EPS. They did beat on free cash flow. They beat on operating margin. They beat on revenue. But it was really that that line about uh, given increased scrutiny on budgets, we're not expecting the typical Q4 budget flush, and that's forcing us to adjust our expectations on annual revenue. Yeah, it's that, it's that added annual revenue in the quarters ahead not coming on the way some would have hoped. But hey, we're going to learn a lot today uh, because we're going to hear straight from the folks who are in the trenches figuring this out. And we're going to stick with software. CrowdStrike feeling the effects of the tough macro environment. How is enterprise demand holding up in other parts of the market? Here to discuss ServiceNow CEO, Bill McDermott. Bill, great to see you. Um, and, and no better time because some mixed signals about enterprise demand out there. You've continued to lean into growth, but how important uh, is this Q4 and the consumer spending to fuel the enterprise spending? Well, as I've been saying for a long time, John, uh, the bottom line is this. The enterprise has shifted from on-premise to cloud. It has shifted from point solutions to platforms. And companies that have a unique position in the market with a unique platform 
will do extremely well in this environment. As you know, ServiceNow is the end-to-end platform for digital transformation. So it's not just what you sell, but it's also who you sell to. You have to be global, you have to go to multiple industries, you have to go to multiple buying centers, and if you can do all that with a platform that helps the customer generate automation, generate cost savings, generate ROI, you're in great position. Well, how much work do you have to do with the customer now to get the sales cycle compressed enough to actually register that revenue? I was just talking to Adam Solipsky over at AWS a couple days ago. He was talking about them deploying those teams more and more to make sure the customers are exactly running what they need on exactly the, the right versions of the software and the platform to operate efficiently. Is that the name of the game now? John, the name of the game is customer value creation, and it has been for some time. We pivoted our company in the second quarter of this year to get 22,000 people moving in one direction to help the customer make money or help the customer save money. And everything is about that customer centricity and ongoing innovation. We built 2,000 net new applications on our platform this year And therefore, we're in a wonderful position, despite the macro, because the customers need automation, they need digital transformation, and they need things to work and flow smoothly so they can win. All the challenges in the macro simply lead to more and more business for companies like ServiceNow because we were built for these weather conditions. Again, point solutions, on-premise, it's not going to cut it. Hey, Bill, you know, we were looking at some of the the other names that printed last night. Uh, Some of the reaction among the sell side is that there was a a lot of software that got bought in advance, uh, essentially a pull forward, the way we talk about uh, work from home and uh, and PCs and other things and hardware. Does that dynamic, is it actually being replicated in enterprise software, too? Well, Carl, again, like what, what I see right now in enterprise software, it's really all about the customers and the challenges they're facing. You know, the macro that they're staring into, to John's question on the consumer, the customer has to serve their customer in new and so, um, so much more innovative ways than they used to have to serve the customer. So the edge of the enterprise, where enterprise service management for the customer is front and center, is one big thing. The second big thing is the messy middle how CEOs and managers of companies can automate the way work flows in the middle of these enterprises. So some of the companies you saw report are focused on the employee experience. Other companies might be focused on security. What we try to do is modernize all ERP functions of a company on a single platform. And finally, if you think about the foundation of digital transformation, you have to have the ERP for IT, because IT is actually driving the business strategy now so you can automate the way the work is done. So think about it in those three layers. If you have a platform that addresses that, regardless of a customer's desire to pull forward or simply buy because the return on invested capital is there, companies like ServiceNow are really well positioned. And that hasn't changed. But Bill, I want to go back to this trend I keep hearing about in customers trying to slow down the sales cycle and break the product into pieces to pay you know, in waves over time versus the way they have in the past. Are you running into that? 
That's the beauty of our model. You know, John, a lot of companies out there started out on premise, right? And they try to transition their business model to the cloud. We were born in the cloud. 10-year public company, never did any business that wasn't in the cloud. So we've always recognized our revenue ratably. We've always had a durable business model. And we've always had the benefit of doing that at the highest gross margin of any company operating in the cloud in the world, which is why our business model is so durable and resilient in this current macro. That is the ultimate difference. So what does this do to the velocity of your expansion plans? I mean, I know you've got you know, the, the longer term five year plus vision, but the velocity over the next few quarters as you pay attention to costs based on the macro, anything changing? We're continuing to invest, and, and, I, and I've said this repeatedly, John, we're building our own business on a organically innovated platform to fundamentally change the way companies run around the world. My biggest challenge is getting the world to know and all the CEOs to know they now have choice. They don't have to do what they always did because if they do, they'll get what they always got. So I'm after complete business transformation. We're building that on our own. We continue to hire engineers. We continue to hire customer-facing executives, all the customer-facing go-to-market people because we want the world to rise up with ServiceNow. John, we're going to create a million net new jobs between now and 2024. Some of them work for ServiceNow. Some of them work for our partners. Some of them will work for our customers. Rise Up with ServiceNow is one of the biggest movements we're generating as a leadership team. And between now and 2024, one million net new, fully trained jobs in the global economy. We're Mm. going for growth, but not growth at all costs. That's why we're also the most profitable cloud company in the SaaS industry and have been since the beginning. All right. Still bullish. Hey, and Bill, uh, a lot of people aren't even getting what they used to get doing what they've always done. Uh, Times are (laughs) tough. Uh, Bill McDermott from ServiceNow. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Carl. Good to see you, Bill. Uh, Let's take a look at the broader market ahead of this afternoon's speech on the economy from Fed Chair Powell. Our Dom Chu is with us and has more on how tech investors, at least, are thinking about the Fed's next move, Dom. It's about whether that terminal rate's going to be where it's supposed to be or how fast we're going to get there. Interest rates have been a huge driver for the downside moves that we've had in technology because interest rates at their higher levels have now pushed valuations down lower. And that's played out a lot more over the course of the month and certainly the year with the Dow Industrials up now for the month, 3%, the outperformer, the S&P is up 2%, and the NASDAQ composite, the more tech-heavier index, is just about flat on the month so far. So it's positive, that's a good sign, but the Dow Industrials on the value trade still doing some outperformance. Now, over the course of the year-to-day period, there's no doubt that technology has been an underperformer. If you look at the NASDAQ 100 and the NASDAQ composite, which has shed almost 30% of its value during that span, with the Dow Industrials just down about 7%. So the tech heavier side of things, weighing things down. Key industry groups and sectors within that technology trade also very much in in focus here. Technology is a sector 25% down year to date. Communication services, that media, social media, telecom side down 36%. And consumer discretionary, which encompasses Amazon and Tesla down about 30% there. Within that trade, 
a huge focus on things like cloud computing and the real bucking of the trend here for semiconductors. It's been a real shift to the upside for semis, so keep an eye on those. Meanwhile, cloud computing, as you guys were just talking about, and financial technology underperformers so far. But you got to pay attention, of course, to what's happening with shares of Apple. The biggest driver, arguably, even mathematically, for a lot of the index moves that we've seen, Apple shares have been in a market downtrend over the medium term, down about 20% since the highs that we saw just over the course of the summer. And by the way, earlier this year, this past year, we were trading at closer to 33 times forward expected earnings. It's closer to 22 times right now, guys. So keep an eye on those Apple shares. And of course, if you want to hear more about it, head over to CNBC.com pro. We've got an interesting write-up about how technicians think Apple's continued weakness could be a real headwind for other parts of the market as well. I'll send things back over to you guys. I was just going to ask about that, Dom, because I did see some uh, some forecasts from technicians last night saying, look, no need for worry at this particular moment. But if it doesn't defend, say, 134, then that would have huge implications for tech and the overall indexes. Absolutely, Carl. And the the reason why a lot of people are looking at that 134 level is we are kind of getting towards that bottom end of the range that we've seen. If this is able to hold, that's going to be key. You mentioned the technical chart side of things. Fundamentally speaking, you're talking about the average analyst target price on Wall Street is tracked by FactSet, still closer to 176 bucks a share, which implies from a fundamental analyst standpoint, from a sell side of things, that's still about a 24 to 25% implied upside. So again, trying to reconcile that Apple trade is huge, but right now there's no doubt the near-term trend has been to the downside, guys. Yeah, uh, definitely uh, the last five days, uh, particularly a week. Don, thanks. A lot to come this afternoon. In fact, still to come this hour, uh, the CEOs of HPE and Intuit on the heels of their results. And then later this week, we're going to check in with the head of uh, Microsoft Azure and the CEOs of VMware and PagerDuty as Cloud Week continues. What a week for it, too, because there's so much else going on as well, which ties in. Tech Check continues after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Let's get a gut check on Workday, up 11%. Julia Borson's with us, has that. Morning, Julia. Good morning, John. The human resources software maker surging by double digits after reporting stronger than expected subscription revenue after the bell yesterday. You see it's now up about 11 percent. The company also bullish on the year ahead, raising its fiscal 2023 revenue and operating margin guidance and authorizing half a billion dollars in share buybacks over the next 18 months. The earnings win places the stock at the top of the Nasdaq 100 this morning. Carl? 
Uh, Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Another cloud name outperforming today is HPE, uh, the cloud spinoff of the computing giant, uh, beating on revenue expectations for their fiscal fourth quarter, second highest quarter on record, in fact, and seeing a massive year-on-year jump in free cash flow as some of these competitors struggled to shore up their own recurring revenue. Joining us this morning is HPE CEO Antonio Neri. Antonio, it's great to have you back. Given some of the pressures uh, others have seen in the space, you talk about a cost structure that's right-sized, a pretty good order book. Is macro less of a concern for you right now? Well, Carl, good morning. Thank you for having me. You know, HP had an outstanding quarter. We delivered record-breaking performance across the key metrics. This was the most profitable quarter in the history of our company. We delivered record-breaking uh, free cash flow and as well as EPS. Um, but also we had the second highest ever revenue quarter. And I'm really pleased with the momentum we have in the market. You know, the demand for our products uh, and solutions, particularly on the platform now called HP GreenLake, is enduring, is steady. And I think this is a culmination of several actions we have taken over a number of quarters. Number one, right size in the company uh, for where we want to spend our time and energy particularly in high growth areas with high gross margin. Number two is our strategy. Our strategy is taking flight, is resonating with customers. That's why we have this impressive order demand, particularly on the HP Green Lake side. But we had an amazing quarter as well on the edge and compute and storage. And then ultimately, uh, as we, we look forward, we believe we are really well positioned to capitalize on those customer needs. So we had an amazing quarter. We executed exceptionally well. It does um, raise the question, though, if the macro backdrop darkens uh, significantly, does that work you've already done allow you to play defense for longer or go on the offense and start trying to take some share? Well, we are gaining share. In fact, our performance in Q4 says that we have gained share in compute, we have gained share in networking, and we are really positioned to deliver an amazing performance in storage and in the data space. So we are going on the offense because we believe our portfolio is uniquely positioned from edge to cloud in a platform-centric model that drives recurrent revenue and profitable growth for our shareholders. And this is the, an opportunity for us. You know, we have worked really hard over the last two years post-pandemic to pivot the company and to deliver value for our shareholders. And you see the numbers in Q4. So we are really confident about the guidance we get for 2023. And that's why our Q1 guidance probably surprised many people because we have that momentum. Antonio, um, as the supply picture has shifted, right, uh, and the consumer market has weakened, you guys uh, yeah. have gotten better access to components that you need. How are you managing that and making sure that you don't, you know, as now demand in the overall global economy slows down, don't get stuck with inventory that's hard to move? Well, we took uh, uh, inventory action starting the back half of 2021, where we start seeing the challenges with some components, particularly in the old node technology type of components. And now in Q4, we already reached the peak of the inventory, and actually we reduced some of the inventory by about $400 million. And because of our significant order book, which, by the way, is larger than we had at the end of 2022, we are going to see that improving uh, working capital coupled with earning power 
and also the fact that we have done all the strategic actions that obviously incur some expense, we're going to see that tremendous momentum of the free cash flow. That's why we guided the street for that $1.9 billion to $2.1 billion. So we think we are extremely well positioned to take advantage of the demand and reduce that inventory and drive the operating leverage through cash flow from operations. Right. Now, how are you expecting the turbulence in the European economies in particular to, to affect your planning there? How steady is the demand uh, out of Europe? What are you able uh, to provide that Europe is willing to consistently and predictably buy? Yeah, I, I got this question yesterday. We actually had even performance across all the geos. We are actually organized from a go-to-market perspective on 10 geos. And across all segments, from large enterprise to global accounts to medium and uh, small uh, type of customers. Uh, and I will say one of the things we have that's unique is our HP GreenLake platform, where you can get access to all the requirements related to technology, whether it's connectivity, cloud in a hybrid approach, where is data in data analytics, where is to protect that data in a secure uh, approach through our HP GreenLake platform. And you can actually pay only for what you consume. One of the key uh, reasons we see the momentum in Europe also because drives sustainability. And obviously in Europe with the challenge related to energy, the fact that we can provide that as a pay as you go and, and contain that carbon footprint is one of the, the reasons why they are attracted to our platform. So we believe we have a unique position across all markets with our platform-centric approach and in an as-a-service model to weather whatever comes next. But I have to tell you, you know, everybody talks about macro, and I would like to talk about micro because we have a unique ecosystem. And while, you know, there is obviously uncertainty on the macro side, on the micro side, I will say we are very, very strong, and I'm really pleased with the momentum we have. Uh, finally, um, cost management, headcount, are those things top of mind right now? Or no. again, is this idea that you've right-sized already mean a lot of that works in the rearview mirror? You know, obviously, uh, Tarek and I, uh, my CFO and I, are very, very determined to continue to drive efficiency uh, across the company. We have embarked on a five-year plan in 2018 where I drove the transformation of our back-end office through automation, simplification, modernization, using our own technology, obviously. And, uh, and, and if you remember, at the beginning of 2020, uh, when the pandemic started, we enacted what we call a reallocation of resources to the high growth areas and accelerate that simplification of our business. We believe we are right-sized and we continue to hire specific skills in certain areas where we can accelerate the strategy that's taking hold in the market. So. Um, we will continue to be disciplined, obviously, but I think one of the key advantages is that our culture has been now transformed. Our employee engagement scores are 20 points up from a couple of years ago, and that has allowed us to attract some unique talent and brightest mind to continue to accelerate what we're doing. Uh, quite a story, Antonio. Uh, stock at its highest level since May today. I appreciate the time, as always. Antonio Neri, thank you. After the break... Intuit CEO Sasan Ghadarzi is with us in another earnings, post-earnings interview. That stock up more than 3%, $110 billion market cap. Plus, programming note here, big week of pro talks. 
continues. This afternoon, our Brian Sullivan sits down with Lee Cooperman. He is picking some of the biggest names in the market and some smaller stocks he thinks have room to run. Go to CNBC.com slash pro. Uh, the talk is, uh, well, is it slash pro? Yeah, pro talks. Pro talks. That's at 3 p.m. today. We'll be right back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. In just a bit, Julia is going to break down Disney's latest purchase, spending nearly a billion dollars to further invest in streaming technology. Pretty interesting story. But first, a news update here with Christina Parts and Evelos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Americans spent an average of about $325 on holiday purchases during the Thanksgiving Day weekend. But uh, this is according to National Retail Federation. That's up actually 8% from a year ago, a record. 197 million Americans visited stores or shopped online during the holiday. The Labor Department says there were 10.3 million job openings as of the end of October. That's less than expected, but still near historical highs. The labor market continues to be resilient even in the face of ongoing interest rate hikes by the Fed. Higher rates, speaking of that, continue to hit the housing market. Pending home sales fell 4.6% in October, according to new figures from the National Association of Realtors. The measure of home contracts signed but not yet closed fell for a fifth consecutive month and was down more than 37% from a year ago. Shares of Hormel are trading lower this morning. The maker of foods like Spam, Skippy Peanut Butter, and Jenny O Turkey, just my average breakfast, issued a weaker-than-expected sales outlook and said it expects elevated expenses to continue into 2023. John, back to you. Christina, thank you. Time now for our final CEO of the hour. Take a look at shares of Intuit. Uh, this move coming after they delivered a beat across the board in fiscal Q1, up 3%. Guidance for the quarter ahead coming in under the consensus, though. Joining us now with his outlook into its CEO, Sasan Gadarzi. Uh, Sasan, good morning. Good to see you. I want to get to Credit Karma eventually, but let's start with what was, what was good, what was strong. You, you're seeing small businesses continue to move toward digitization even in this choppy economy, growth well above 20%. What are they more leaning into now? Good morning, John. Uh, great to see you. Uh, very pleased with our performance uh, in the quarter. And, um, you know, just a little bit of context, about 50% of the company is small business, about 35% is tax, and about 14%, you know, is credit karma. Uh, and particularly with small businesses, we're continuing to see a, a flight to digitization. And there's really two things that are important for small businesses. One, they want to figure out how to grow their business and get customers, keep the ones that they have. Uh, and two, it's managing their cash flow. So when you look at the combination of what we're doing for small businesses uh, with both MailChimp and QuickBooks, we're able to help them really manage their existing customers, uh, provide more services to their existing customers, find ways to get new customers cost effectively, while then across the QuickBooks platform, we're able to manage all of their money in and money out, and not just transactionally, but also giving them insights around their cash flow projections and what it could mean in terms of 
inventory choices that they have, whether or not they should hire more employees, whether they need access to capital, uh, and then helping them make those uh, decisions. And that's really what continues to be the strength that we experienced in the quarter. The, the uh, part of the guidance that we provided for the rest of the year is we expect small business to you know, grow between 19 to 20%, and that's at a well over $7 billion scale. So we're pleased with just the digitization efforts of the company and more right. pleased that we're able to serve uh, small businesses. Now let's get into Credit Karma because I think it, it potentially has implications for what's going on in the broader economy. Much of Credit Karma is about matching people who want credit with, with companies that are offering it. And it, it seems like the shortfall here, as you guys described it, is credit card issuers getting a lot more cautious about who they're willing to give credit to, particularly when it comes to the riskier end of things. So what does that mean for the year that we're entering into, uh, into 2023 after this holiday season and uh, the amount of, I guess, wiggle room that consumers, perhaps on the riskier end of the spectrum, are likely to have? Yeah, I love the question. You actually sort of nailed the, the foundational uh, discussion that we had at earnings uh, yesterday. First, to reiterate what you said, the Credit Karma platform, you know, we have over 129 million members on the platform. And really, our focus is to help members with personalized experiences, meaning that what, whatever their needs are, whether it's managing their money, whether it's accessing credit, credit cards, insurance, loans, our focus is to match their needs with what's right uh, for them. Uh, and in essence, what we started experiencing towards the latter part of October and into November uh, was a, a tightening by partners. Now, typically, partners focus on two big things. One is unemployment rate. The other is delinquency rates. And both of them are really at historical lows. However, partners, financial institutions, are, I think being uh, really looking at foresight, looking into the future and assuming things are going to get a lot worse. And so they've begun uh, to sort of tighten uh, credit. And that's really uh, what impacted our performance in the first quarter. But more importantly, we decided to be very prudent and very conservative uh, with the remainder of the year when it came to our guidance for uh, Credit Karma. And that's why we reset Credit Karma segment guidance, because we're, just gonna, we're assuming that unemployment will get a lot worse, delinquency rates are going to get worse, and therefore uh, the performance will get worse while we lean into our innovation. And John, to specifically answer your question, what does that mean for consumers? I'll give you a couple of data points that we are seeing um, on our platform across these 120 plus uh, million members. Uh, one is cash reserves are actually um, higher than pre-pandemic. But what we've seen is uh, credit card balances have actually increased by about 14%. Uh, your credit score on our platform generally has uh, decreased by about eight points, which means there's some financial um, hardship. Uh, and particularly, uh, the credit bands between 600 to 660, and that's sort of, I would put in the bucket of the middle class, they have the highest balances of about $8,000 per member on average. And that's higher than it's been in the past. And so those things indicate that um, there's just some strain with consumers, although their cash reserves are higher than it has been pre-pandemic. Right. And there's been a lot of work done uh, lately looking at what excess savings do remain. They're highly concentrated in the upper parts of the income uh, strata. I, I do wonder, though, historically, when you see conditions like this tighten, um, and you, is it your sense that in prior cycles they, uh, it was overdone, too much caution, or kind of fit the scenario that eventually played out? Well, you know, it's, it's easy to play Monday morning uh, quarterback, like looking backwards and... and um, 
sometimes, uh, you know, looking backwards, we've been too late to act. And then sometimes we go overboard. And that's always, it's a, it's a tough uh, balance. I just think we need to be very thoughtful and, and cautious in terms of how we try to um, address inflation, how we try to address demand, but in a way where we can be soft in terms of how we land the economy. Because just even the, the jobs report this morning, there's strength in the economy. There's resilience in the economy. The cash reserves for consumers and small businesses are higher than they have been, but everybody is in a pinch. And just being able to manage that thoughtfully so we don't really have a hard landing is very important to be able to bounce out of, bounce out of this current environment in a, in a thoughtful way around the globe. So, Sasan, what are you leaning into as Intuit, particularly on the small business side, to keep customers from churning off the platform and to try to, I guess, increase share of wallet, to increase value, to accelerate the move to digitization. Are you uh, doing more, spending more R&D to drive that? Or are you being more flexible with payments for businesses that are under pressure? What do you do? Yeah, great question. Uh, in fact, I, I'm about to, after this, go uh, talk to our entire company uh, about not only how we are performing, but the biggest focus areas. And the two things that remain steadfast for us, uh, for small businesses, is one, to help them keep their customers and to help them sell more services to their existing customers and very sort of prudently acquire new. And that's all of it through the MailChimp platform. The other is cash flow. Uh, it's, it's shifting them to digitize um, all of their um, cash flow, money in and money out. The example I would use for you is we have over $2 trillion of invoices that get managed um, on our platform, and almost 70% of that is still checks. And uh, when there is a check sent, it takes 75 days plus to actually get paid as a small business. And when you're in a cash crunch, 75 days matters a lot. And so by using all of our payments capabilities, in some ways you can actually get paid instantly or even get paid upfront the moment the invoice goes out. So our focus is twofold, help you keep and grow your customers and help you manage your cash flow with all of our payments, payroll and QuickBooks Capital capabilities and to provide you accurate sort of forecasts uh, of your own cash flow based on everything that we see on the platform to then give you insight of what to do. And I'll just end with this. You know, small businesses, whether they have four or five employees or, or 50 employees, they don't have all the capabilities of enterprise companies. And so the job our platform needs to do and is doing is to actually be your right hand. It's to actually provide you insights of actions you should take. And that's really what we are focused on to help small businesses thrive in this environment. Well, Sasan, you uh, completed that MailChimp acquisition a year ago this month. Timely addition to the portfolio, Sasan Ghadarzi, CEO of Intuit. Thanks for joining us on Cloud Week. Thank you, John. As we go to break, want to take a look at DoorDash. Company, as you may know by now, cutting more than 1,200 jobs. Uh, CEO Tony Hsu saying, quote, we were not as rigorous as we should have been in managing our team growth. Uh, with that, though, shares getting a pop here of 4.5% in what's overall a relatively muted tape. S&P basically flat. Be right back. Welcome back. Disney expanding its streaming portfolio, buying the rest of Major League Baseball stake in streaming firm BamTech. Our Julia Borston's back with us and has more on what that means for their streaming strategy. Hey, JB. 
Hey, Carl. In its 8K annual report filing, Disney announcing that it's acquiring the remaining 15% of BAM Tech that it didn't already own. Now, BAM Tech is the technology that powers Disney's streaming platforms. Disney is paying $900 million, executing the right to complete the purchase of BAM Tech five years after its original deal with the company. Now, this did happen earlier in November, so that means it was under former CEO Bob Chapek. The filing also revealing that in the coming months, Iger will initiate organizational and operational changes and restructuring and change in business strategy that the company says could result in impairment charges. UBS with a buy rating saying that Iger's return spells more change than merely undoing his predecessor, Bob Chapek's reorganization of the company, saying management could explore strategic alternatives for the linear segment, saying the company will refine its direct-to-consumer strategy to focus more on profitability. And for parks, they do expect more incremental change with more of a focus on in attendance and the consumer experience and less on price as pressure on consumer wallets intensifies. Now, Atlantic Equities is more cautious with a neutral rating on the stock, noting that Disney shares have given up some of the gains that were made on Iger's appointment, saying that's because there is no easy fix for this company's challenges, saying, quote, strong management cannot offset the headwinds from cord cutting in the pay TV industry and direct-to-consumer streaming losses, going on to say that earnings per share most recently peaked in 2015. And that was a level that won't be seen again until 2025, saying that Disney is essentially a company with a decade of no growth. John, we'll have to see how this all plays out. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Up next, apartment rentals coming to Airbnb. The details after a quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Airbnb is partnering with several major landlords to allow tenants to list their apartments. Diana Olick is with us, has more <laughs> details. Diana? Well, John, historically, the overwhelming majority of rental buildings prohibit short-term subletting. So this gives tenants the ability to host their apartments just like homeowners do. Airbnb is partnering with two major apartment REITs, that's Equity Residential and UDR, as well as with Graystar, the largest apartment management company in the U.S. It's starting with about 175 apartment buildings in roughly 25 major markets. Those include L.A., San Francisco, Atlanta, Dallas, Denver, Seattle, and Phoenix, some cities, though, like New York City and Washington, D.C., are not available due to local restrictions on short-term rentals. The new portal went live today. There's a calculator that helps you to predict uh, what the earning potential is. Uh, again, uh, if you're doing this on a part-time basis, um, and you can enter in different assumptions, and we really do think this is going to help uh, during this time in particular where inflation is high and people are uh, struggling with the cost of living. Now, the calculator factors in the building's rent range, amenities, number of bedrooms for each unit, and the number of nights each building allows. Buildings will cap the nights at between around 80 and 120 per year, and the building can take a cut of the host's Airbnb payment, and that can be up to 20 percent. You know, right up front uh, that that hosting is permitted uh, in these buildings and giving the landlords full visibility to who in the building is hosting, how often are they hosting and making sure that the rules are being followed. The primary tenant must make the apartment their primary residence. So this is not for investors looking to sublet the apartments all year long, just for those apartment tenants. Carl. Uh, Diane, I'm wondering just 
how much visibility does this tool give air give, give the landlord into the Airbnb? I mean, the overall number of nights, sure, but um, I, I guess who's the who's the customer of Airbnb here? Is it more the landlord or is it more the tenant? Well, it's actually both because the landlord, as I said, is getting a cut of this. So it's able to attract more and get more income and be open on this Airbnb platform, which might bring in more people to the apartment in general. But also, of course, it's for that tenant who in a lot of especially the higher end buildings definitely don't allow this type of short term subletting so they can supplement their rent. We all know rents are sky high and a lot of people are using this to offset their monthly payments. They go to a friend's house over the weekend and can make, you know, couple hundred bucks just for that weekend, and that helps a lot. So it really helps on both sides. Certainly the argument uh, from Airbnb for sure, Diana. Pretty fascinating. Thank you, uh, Diana Olick. Uh, one more time, don't forget to tune in to a big week of Pro Talks this week. It's Lee Cooperman today at 3 p.m. You can scan the QR code on your screen now to join that conversation uh, with Sully. Tech Check, meantime, is back in a moment. The crypto headlines do not stop coming this morning. A bit front shutting down while BlockFi looks to distance itself from FTX. Our Kate Rooney has a complete wrap up. Hey, Kate. Hey, Carl. Good morning. That's right. Let's start with Bitfront. So this is a U.S. exchange saying this week it will cease operations in a few months. It did say the move was unrelated to recent issues with FTX, but it is the latest crypto company to fold under the broader market pressure we've seen lately. And then you've got BlockFi. We talked about this crypto lender on Monday. It filed for bankruptcy this week. In its first hearing yesterday, trying to really separate itself from FTX, lawyers there said it was blindsided by FTX's downfall. It also described the company as really a victim here of what happened. If you remember, this summer, FTX was supposed to swoop in and bail out BlockFi. It had the option to buy that company. And BlockFi is also suing Sam Bankman-Fried over his stake in Robinhood. He allegedly pledged those shares as collateral just days before his exchange went under. Still, though, Bitcoin this morning really hitting its highest price since the week that FTX had filed for bankruptcy. It's still on pace, though, for its worst month since June. That's when the cryptocurrency lost more than 40 percent. It had topped 17,000 this morning, hitting a little bit of resistance around that level. We also saw Ether rallying a bit overnight. It is still down about 19 percent for the month. And some analysts are seeing this short term rally as a short-term rally. And they say that today's uh, bounce here is due to some short covering. And guys, as a result of the jitters we've talked about, there has been a flood of investors moving their money off of exchanges like Coinbase or Binance into what they call cold storage, essentially offline. You see that is now at an all-time high on the right-hand side of that chart there. And then we had Goldman Sachs this morning saying that markets right now are still quite sensitive to unusual fund flows, price moves, and all the reports coming out of the back of FTX's bankruptcy investors are looking to identify pockets of risk and preempt any exposure. They do see some bright spots as crypto looks for a bottom. For one, the implied risk premium has been dropping. And then its realized volatility has dropped from about a plus 150 to below 70, which is about the, the October level. All of this crypto news certainly driving the narrative. Investors also watching Jay Powell's speech today for any clues about interest rates and slower rates here could be seen as a good thing for any risk assets, especially Bitcoin. John, back to you. Yeah, all this as crypto exchange Kraken laying off a thousand employees, about 30 percent of the workforce. Kate, thank you. We also continue to keep our eye on China and how protests there uh, around COVID lockdowns are impacting stocks. Seema Modi has more on how some of those names are trading. Seema?
Pretty incredible moves today, John. Uh, the country may be facing its toughest challenge yet with protests and rising COVID cases. However, any indication of China loosening its COVID restrictions is being seen uh, as a buying opportunity. News today, Gangzhou relaxing COVID rules in several districts. Morgan Stanley's latest note, not even mentioning the civil disobedience we're seeing on the ground. Strategists there laser focused on the country's reopening. And results from Pinduoduo also boosting sentiment earlier this week. Shares are now up about 43 percent in November, trading at its highest level in a year. So these gains really go beyond the large caps like Alibaba and JD.com. Take a look at Tencent Music. It's a small cap, but higher by 80% in the last four weeks. Now, separately, last night, Nick Burns, the U.S. ambassador to China, speaking at the Chicago Council virtually and shared that the lockdowns have been severe, taking a toll on his staff, the U.S. embassy in Beijing, saying, quote, it's very difficult to go into government, government ministries. In fact, I expect to be having some virtual meetings this week with the government of China because they're uh, because of these COVID restrictions. He also added that consular officers are unable to check on American prisoners in China over the last three years, how it's been difficult doing so uh, because of those restrictions. So clearly a sharp contrast when you look at stock performance versus what's happening on the ground. Carl? Uh, just a remarkable disconnect, Seema. Thank you. I see Modi this morning. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, meantime, Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing before we go as we await the Fed chair this afternoon. Elon Musk chiming in, urging the Fed chair to cut interest rates immediately, saying that the recent rate hikes are, quote, massively amplifying the probability of a severe recession. John, kind of keeping in uh, the same lane as what uh, Bezos and even, uh, say, David Solomon might have suggested. Uh, perhaps. There is no subject, Carl, that Elon Musk does not feel qualified to weigh in on. That's right, and that we will talk about after that. Uh, obviously, big night tonight between the Salesforce, Snow and Splunk, and the Fed chair. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.